Well, good evening. It's great to see all of you. It's uh, been a couple of years. Our family was here for the very first time in 2011. Our daughter at that time was about 18 months old, and now she's nine. Uh, we were back with you all just two years ago in 2017, and so I'm going to try not to repeat too many of my stories and all of my best jokes I've already used, unfortunately. But uh, it's great to be back with you all. Um, I, unlike my colleague, Dr. Murphy, am actually from Texas, born and raised, and so it's really not fair to be on a preaching team with Jonathan Murphy, right? It's just not fair that he could be that handsome, that good a preacher, and have that amazing accent to boot, right? It's just, it's just not fair. But uh, in these evening sessions, we are focusing in on the faithfulness of God and looking together at different aspects of God's faithfulness displayed to us in the Scripture, my assignment for tonight is to talk about God's faithfulness to forgive our sins. And so I want to focus in on that little verse that we all know quite well, if we're very familiar with the New Testament at all, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this evening, what I want to do is I want to explore that verse in its context and see what God has for us as we remember the faithfulness of God in forgiving our sins. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it out, turn it on, and scroll with me to 1 John chapter 1. I heard a preacher say not that long ago that it used to be that he got to hear the beautiful sound of the, word, the pages of the Word of God being turned, and, and now it's just the warm glow of God's Word on people's face. I remember not that long ago looking out, and there was a gentleman over here in the audience who had his iPad, and the, the brightness turned all the way up, and it was like the Shekinah glory um, on his... Uh, on his face, but we're going to look together at 1 John chapter 1. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn our attention now to your word, would you speak through the power of your word, the, the power of your spirit, Lord, would you help us to hear from you, to hear your heart for us as your children? And Lord, would you move in this place by the presence and power of the Spirit in such a way that we would respond as is fitting tonight. God, I pray that you would empower me, that you would use me, that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. The late philosopher and spiritual writer Dallas Willard told a story that has stuck with me for years since I first heard it. A story of his three-year-old granddaughter, Larissa, playing in the backyard as she was being watched this afternoon by her grandmother, who she called Nana. Nana was engrossed in a novel taken uh, in, in her book and, and reading, and so Larissa ran around the backyard playing until she discovered a mud puddle. And she began to make mud pies. She called it warm chocolate. Nana, engrossed in her book, was oblivious to what was happening with the little girl, and so she just got completely covered in mud. And after a little while, Nana looked up and realized what had happened and called little Larissa over to her, cleaned her up, got all the mud off of her, and then said to her, now, Larissa, no more making chocolate, no more playing in the mud, all right? And she sent her off to play. Well, Larissa ran around the backyard some more, played. Nana went back to um, her novel, and after a little while, the the magnetic pull of that mud puddle was just too strong to resist. And so little Larissa went back and began making chocolate, began playing in the mud all over again. 
Only this time, as she did, every couple of minutes, like only a little three-year-old can, she said, don't look at me, Nana, okay? (laughs) And Nana, being perhaps a little bit too obliging, allowed the little girl to continue to play in the mud, continue to make a mess of herself as she continued to say in that three-year-old voice, don't look at me, Nana, okay? And Willard, reflecting upon that story, concludes by saying, thus the tender soul of a little child shows us how important it is that we be unobserved in our wrong. In a similar vein, John Ortberg writes these words, it may be that of all the prayers that are ever spoken, the most common one, the the quietest one, the one that we least acknowledge making is simply this, don't look at me, God. Orberg continues, a businessman on the road checks into a motel room late at night. He knows the kind of movies that are available to him in his room. No one will know. His wife won't find out. His kids won't see. But first he has to say a little prayer. Don't look at me, God. A mom with an anger problem decides to berate her kids because she's so frustrated, because she'll get a twist of pleasure out of inflicting pain. But first she has to say a little prayer. Don't look at me, God. An executive who's going to pad an expense account, an employee who's going to deliberately make a coworker look bad, a student who looks at someone else's paper during an exam, a church member who looks forward to the chance to gossip. First, you have to say a little prayer. And Orberg concludes, we don't say it out loud, of course. We probably won't even admit it to ourselves, but it's the choice our heart makes. Don't look at me, God. After a while, this prayer can become so ingrained that we're not even aware of it. None of us likes the feeling of being exposed. Right? None of us likes to be observed in our wrong, whether it's a simple mistake that we make at work, a, a, a bad grade perhaps a student gets on an, an assignment, maybe it's a, a, a sin pattern that repeats itself, a, a crack in our character, maybe it's a deep betrayal. But none of us likes the feeling of being exposed. And yet, what I'm going to suggest to you tonight based on the word of God, is that central to the spiritual life of a Christian is the willingness to live an exposed life. The willingness that we have to agree with God about the reality of our ongoing struggle with sin. In fact, I'm going to argue from this text that the ongoing struggle with sin is one of the marks of authentic Christian experience. You'll have to follow along with the text to to see how I'll make that rather counterintuitive argument. But I think that as we look at this passage together, that we'll see that the ongoing struggle with sin is an essential part of the genuine Christian experience. And so look with me, if you will, at 1 John chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 5. John writes these words. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I think as we look at this passage together, what we're going to find is that John sets out to combat two lies, two lies that they were prone to believe in their day, two lies that I believe that we're prone to believe in our day. And he's going to combat those lies with the truth. And we'll see those lies captured when he uses these little words, if we claim. Three times in this passage, he'll use that phrase, if we claim. And I think that each time he does, he's actually combating one of the lies that was present in the church that he was writing to. That You see, John was writing to a group of Christians over whom he had some kind of pastoral responsibility, some kind of pastoral influence. And the best we can tell from John's letter is that there was false teaching that had crept into this Christian community. And in fact, some had broken off from these churches, the sectarians we might call them, that they had been um, persuaded by this false teaching and therefore broken fellowship with these Christians. And, and so John sets out to write these, this letter to give us the essentials of Christian belief and living, and to combat the lies that were tempting many within this community to go astray. And the first thing that John says in this little passage is, God is light. What's interesting is it seems when John makes this affirmation that he's actually affirming something that his opponents would also say. God is light, that the, the false teaching that seems to have crept into these churches that John writes to is an early form of what later gets developed into uh, a philosophy called Gnosticism, um, from the Greek word which means knowledge. The idea was that salvation comes through some kind of special knowledge, some kind of spiritual enlightenment. And so their favorite way, the, the primary way which Gnostic teaching talks about God is to say that God is light and that we are saved by spiritual enlightenment. John begins with a claim that his opponents would agree to, but then he takes it in a direction and, and teases out the implications of that claim in ways that counteract the teaching of his opponents. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. God is light, God is pure, God is undefiled, God is uncorrupted, God is holy. We sang it this morning, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And this is the way that the Old Testament in several different places uses this, this uh, three times repetition of the idea of the holiness of God, that God is completely set apart from anything that is defiled, anything that is corrupted, and to, to repeat the word holy, holy, holy is their way of really highlighting, distinguishing the idea of the holiness of God. They didn't have available to them in their day things that we have available to us when we're writing. We could use bold or underlined or italics. So instead, a Hebrew writer, to emphasize an idea, would repeat a word. There's one place in the book of Genesis where um, in our English translations, we read that they came across tar pits. But if you go back and read it in the Hebrew, it actually says pit pits. It's the author's way of saying it's one thing if you fall into a pit. It's another thing altogether if you fall into a pit pit, right? He's saying these are 
pit pits, and heaven forbid you ever come across a pit, pit, pit. (laughs) And the biblical writers, the angels that surround the throne of God cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God is completely set apart from anything that is defiled and corrupted. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. I think this, in this first if we claim statement that John makes, we see the first lie that he sets out to combat. And that first lie is, I don't struggle with sin. I sin, and there is no struggle. Right? This is the idea that seemed to be prevalent in these false teachers, that they could live however they pleased, that they didn't really have to worry about sin. You see, in Gnostic teaching, there is this strong distinction between the body and the soul. This dualism between body and soul, body is bad, soul is good. And what they longed for, what they desired was their soul to be liberated from their body, salvation through enlightenment, through special knowledge. And what that entailed for them, though, is the idea that what I do with my body doesn't matter to my soul. I can be spiritual and do whatever I want to with my body. It was a a distinction between my spirituality and my morality. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that, that that kind of lie still holds in our day. Maybe not with all the same kind of Gnostic trappings, but the notion that, that, that I can be spiritual and I can live however I want. And John says, this is a lie. We can't claim to have fellowship, koinonia, a deep uh, relationship with God, and yet walk in darkness. Now, I don't think what John is teaching here is the idea of sinless perfectionism as though we Christians can truly achieve a state of complete sinlessness. That's not the idea. But but what John is getting at is that we can't live in ongoing, unrepentant sin and claim to be in relationship with God. That while we may still continue to sin, we who are genuine believers will struggle with sin. That we can't claim to have a relationship with God and live in ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. These two ideas are incompatible. John says that if we um, claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. John talks about this idea of our walking in the light. And I think that what we find is that we're helped in understanding about what he means by walking in the light if we look at what is written for us in John's gospel. In John's gospel, chapter 3, I have to find it in my notes here. Sorry, this was what I was worried about, using my iPad for the first time. Cut off part of my, part of my notes. Here's the, here's the passage, John chapter 3, beginning verse 19. John writes, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done, they have done in the sight of God. To walk in the light is to live an exposed life, a life that isn't hidden. We can't hide in the shadows and still claim to live in the light. We can't say, God, purify me of my sin, but don't make me stop it. To live in the light is to live an exposed life, not a sinless life, not a perfect life, but an honest life. A life that is willing to bring the reality of our struggle into the light. And interestingly, what John says is that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. Koinonia, with one another. Our willingness to bring our struggle with sin into the light is an essential part of our life together in real community. One of the essential ingredients of authentic Christian community is authenticity, vulnerability, honesty about the reality of our ongoing struggle with sin. I have a a friend named Joel um, who did a PhD at Cambridge University, another Dallas Seminary grad, Joel Lawrence, who was a student with me and went on to study at Cambridge University and wrote his doctoral dissertation about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and studied the period of Bonhoeffer's life where he lived in community in in an underground seminary at Finkenwalde. And Joel wrote a wonderful essay on that period of Bonhoeffer's life, which Bonhoeffer chronicled in his book, Life Together. And Joel's essay was called Death Together. Death Together is all about the idea of our willingness to confess our sin to one another. That essential for us to truly live life together is for us to die to ourselves enough to be willing to confess our sin to one another. That we can, in fact, go directly to God with our sin. That we need not go through a priest to receive absolution. That that we can receive absolution, forgiveness, through confession directly to God. But what Bonhoeffer suggests is that Christian wisdom reminds us that sometimes it's important that we go to God to confess our sin by going to a brother or going to a sister, as the case may be. Here's what Bonhoeffer writes about the confession to a brother. He says, why is it that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He's the just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to a holy God? But if we do, right, if we do find it easier, we must ask ourselves, whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confessions of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution 
And it is not the reason, perhaps, for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach with sin. This can be accomplished only by the judging and pardoning word of God itself. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and forgiveness of our sins we are not dealing with ourselves alone but with the living God? God gives us this certainty through our brother. Our brother breaks the cycle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sin, everything else remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has been brought into the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That we come together and are honest about the reality of our ongoing struggle with sin. And this is part of the way in which God undoes, un untangles the tentacles of sin from our lives. The first lie that John sets out to combat is the lie that says, I don't struggle with sin, I sin. No struggle. I do whatever I want. It's like the old drunk that says, I don't have a drinking problem. I drink, I get drunk, no problem. John says, no. No. The reality is that we as Christians will continue to struggle with sin, but we must bring our sin into the light. And then he says, picking up in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then we come to our familiar verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, did you see there in that little section two times he uses that little phrase, if we claim? I think here again he's representing the claims, the arguments of his opponents, these false teachers. The first if we claim says, if we claim to be without sin. The second if we claim says, if we claim we have not sinned. These two claims seem on the surface to be the same thing. But I think there may in fact be a subtle distinction between the two. That it seems as though the first one, if we claim to be without sin, is to say if we claim not to have a sin nature. If we claim not to be born with a bent towards sin. The second seems to be then the claim, if we claim we have not sinned, that is the claim that we haven't actually committed any sins. This is the lie that says, I don't have a sin problem. I don't sin. I'm not a sinner. Because really, after all, is sin really that big a deal? And while that lie may have taken a certain kind of expression in John's day, I think it's not hard to imagine the way in which that lie continues to take hold in many hearts today. I'm not really a sinner. Is sin really that big a deal? With all the things in the world that God has to worry about, is, is my life really one of them? I spent the last 22 years of my life in some form or fashion in Christian higher education. 10 years as a student of Bible and theology, and then 12 years teaching on the faculty at Dallas Seminary. 22 years of my life 
in Christian higher education, theological education. And can I tell you, perhaps the most important lesson that I've learned in all those 22 years, right? Have your pen ready to write this down. 22 years of theological education. It'll save you a lot of money right here. You ready? Sin is a big deal to God. 22 years of Christian higher education, theological education, and perhaps the most profound lesson that I've learned in all those 22 years is sin is a big deal to God. And friends, here's the reason that that's so profound, is that so often, sin is no big deal to me. So often, sin is no big deal to me. And yet we need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to be reminded that sin is a big deal to God. And, and, and John sets out to combat the lie that says, I don't have a sin problem. I don't sin. I'm not a sinner. Sin's no big deal. It's some antiquated notion. And once again, John combats that lie. He says in verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, out to be a liar. John says that if we, if we buy into this lie that I'm not a sinner, I don't, I don't sin, if we buy into this lie that we are lying to ourselves and we are claiming that God is a liar, that we are living in unreality. And we're making God himself out to be a liar. Because if I say, I don't have a sin problem. If I say, I don't need a savior. And God says, you need a savior. I sent my son to save you. One of those statements is the truth. And the other is a lie. If I claim that I don't have a sin nature, if I claim that I haven't sinned, if I claim that sin is really no big deal, I am living in unreality, and I'm calling God a liar. And yet we have this glorious promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. If we confess, that is, if we agree with God about the reality of our sin, he is faithful. He is just. And we can trust his character. And we can trust the reality that Christ has taken our place. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll never forget years ago when I was a college student, some buddies and I uh, took a trip up to Oklahoma from Texas. We put our mountain bikes on the back of our car and we took off for Oklahoma to go explore a cave that a mentor of mine had introduced me to a few years before. And I was taking my buddies to explore this cave for the very first time. We parked in a parking lot, and then we got out our bikes. We went over a barbed wire fence, and we began to ride our bikes through the woods a couple of miles to get back to the opening of this cave. It was sweltering hot that day. And yet, it had just rained a few days before, so it was humid and hot and muddy. And as we're pedaling along on this trail through the woods, I'm sweating like crazy. The mud is flying up off of my tires and, and clinging to my legs and being flung up on my back and even into my hair. By the time we got to the cave, I was already a mess. 
But then we got to the cave, and this cave has this small opening where you get down on your belly and you crawl in, and, and this cave has a very narrow opening for a long way back, and then it opens up, and it's really remarkable to be able to explore these rooms far back in this cave. We begin to go into this opening of the cave and realize that the, the ceiling, the, the, the roof of the cave is moving, that it's covered in daddy long legs. And we'd swipe some of those away and fling them on each other a little bit and, and then crawl our way down into the cave. And I mean, there are parts of that cave that your body barely fits through. And because of the recent rain, it meant the whole cave was covered in mud. By the time we got back down into the cave and came back out, I am covered head to toe. I mean, I am just dripping mud. Then we get back on our bikes and we ride the couple of miles back to our car. And so now the mud's just running down and the sweat all over me. I mean, I was a mess. I don't think I've ever been that dirty in my entire life. But do you know the thing that I remember perhaps more than anything else about that experience exploring the cave that day? The shower at the end. <laughs> because when you're that dirty... It feels so good to be clean. And John says, if we confess our sin, if we agree with God about the reality of our sin, that he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I think it's important that we dispel what I think can be a bit of a misconception, perhaps, about the implications of this verse. Some take this verse to, to um, understand that this is the experience, the ongoing experience of a Christian, that their forgiveness is contingent upon their confession, that they don't actually receive the forgiveness until they confess their sin, which can put us in a bit of a peril if, if that's true, if that's the case. If we don't experience forgiveness until we confess, if there is a gap between our sin and our confession, we could be in trouble, right? You walk out and you get hit by a bus and your eternal destiny perhaps in peril. And friends, I think we just have to say this, whatever John may be teaching here, he can't be teaching that because that would stand in stark contrast to the explicit teaching of the New Testament and other places. And even John's own teaching elsewhere in this very book. In 1 John chapter 2, John speaks to this reality. And he says this, I'm writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That when we trust in Christ, when we, for the very first time, agree with God about the reality of our sin and our need for a Savior, when we trust in Christ, we are forgiven. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And so we know, based on God's character, that he is faithful and that he is just, we know that then we can come to him again. We know that we can bring our sin before him. We know that we can live an exposed life a life that's honest about the reality of our ongoing struggle with sin. Now, I wanna just tie this up by looking at the next few verses because while our chapter ends fairly abruptly here, you know well that these verse numbers and chapter numbers were inserted much later and John's idea actually continues. 
And so we see that John's thought continues into the first couple of verses of chapter 2. And he says, Dear children, I write this to you that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I have taught my congregation, and I've already done it several times, even since just taking over as senior pastor back at the end of January, that when you see the two little words, so that, in your Bible, you should always underline or, or circle, because what's coming next is the whole point. It's the purpose. And John writes, I'm writing this to you. He's telling us the reason that he's writing these words is so that you will not sin. John is writing to his Christians so that they will not be deluded by the lies of the false teachers and find themselves in sin. He's writing to them that they might live in holiness, but recognizing that the call to holiness isn't a call to sinless perfection. It's the call to a an honest, authentic, exposed life. I'm writing this so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. John essentially says, be holy and experience grace. And for John, there is no contradiction between the call to holiness and the experience of grace. Because even as we grow over time in holiness, we will still find ourselves in need of the grace of God. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And very interestingly, this little word, advocate, is the same word that we find in John's gospel to refer to the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the advocate, that the Spirit is called the advocate who will come to us. And here, John says, and we have an advocate with the Father. That we have an advocate in heaven advocating on our behalf and we have an advocate here with us, the Holy Spirit, enabling us, empowering us to live a holy life. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The idea of atonement is a Christian doctrine that is central to our faith and yet isn't talked about a lot in our churches anymore. And yet, this idea of atonement, the very notion of atonement, is captured in the word itself. Atonement is at one meant. It is what Jesus has done to bring us into unity, to bring us, at, to make us at one with God. And Jesus Christ is our atoning sacrifice. I love the way that the theologian Gabriel Fakra captures this idea. When he says, just as it was God's own heart that was broken by our sin, so it is God's own heart that takes into itself the consequences of that sin. The consequences, the wages of sin are death. And in the righteousness of God, there can be no possible evasion of the scales of this justice. Death follows sin as night follows day. The aggression of the human race against the purposes of God is not indulged, overlooked, waved aside, or winked at. But the miracle of Calvary is that God, the judge, goes into the dock for the sentencing. It is on deity that the consequences fall. It is in deity that the price is paid. Here, the judgment that befits our crime 
was meted out, received, and absorbed. How deep the Father's love for us, we sang earlier. The wounds that mar the chosen one bring many sons and daughters to glory. That he is our atoning sacrifice. And it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that we can trust that God is faithful and that he is just to forgive us our sin. We all continue to find ourselves as Christians experiencing the ongoing struggle with sin. So if you're here tonight and, and you've believed the lie, you've bought into the lie perhaps that I don't struggle with sin. I sin and there is no struggle. Or maybe you've believed the lie that I don't have a struggle with sin. I'm not a sinner. You've believed a lie. And the invitation to you is to come to the truth, to agree with God for you for the very first time perhaps about the reality that you need a Savior. That the blood of Jesus cleanses us, purifies us from sin. And the invitation to you is to embrace the forgiveness that he offers. But for all of us here who perhaps have, have trusted in Christ for the first time a long, long time ago, the invitation is to recognize that we all continue to struggle with sin. And some of you here may be saying, trust me, Barry, I can attest the struggle is real. The invitation for you tonight is to bask in the reality of your forgiveness. Knowing that you are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus shed on your behalf, that you can come boldly and honestly before God to name the reality of your struggle. And maybe for you tonight, even tonight before you'd go to bed, Maybe tonight you need to go to a brother or to a sister and to be honest about the reality of your struggle with them, to invite them into your struggle as you seek to live an exposed life, a life of honesty to God, to yourself, and to each other. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you tonight for the truth and beauty of the gospel, for the reality that, that we have a Savior, that we have an advocate with you who pleads with you on our behalf, who stood in our place, who came into this world and, and lived a life of perfect obedience to you, and that he took our sin upon himself so that we might take his righteousness upon us. And then now, because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, we can come boldly, honestly, and live a life in the light, exposing our hearts and the reality of our struggle, being honest with you and with ourselves and with each other. We pray that by your spirit you would move in us that we might respond as is fitting tonight. And if there are any who are here that have never trusted in Christ for the first time, Lord, we pray that that they might feel the, 
the wooing of the Spirit, that they might feel drawn to embrace Christ by faith, trust in him for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sin and the promise of eternal life with you. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.